Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 31st of May 2021 and this is episode 210. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talked to historian Nick Perry about his recent book on the life and Great War career of Major General Oliver Nugent. This book is published by the Ulster History Forum. Nick spoke to me from his home in County Down, Northern Ireland. Hi Nick, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Right. Uh, well, Tom, thank you very much. Thank you for uh, inviting me onto onto the show. Um, uh, about myself, I read history at Trinity College Dublin way back uh, in the last century, and then I spent uh, 37 years as a civil servant working uh, in London and Belfast. But I retired a couple of years ago, and I, now I've kind of gone back to the university world, and I'm doing uh, doctoral research uh, at Kent on the Irish landed class and British Army. I suppose my interest in military history goes back to my childhood, like, like many of us. Um, um, perhaps stimulated in my case by the fact that my army was a, my father was a, a, although a clergyman, was a chaplain in Burma during the war. So I suppose part of it stems from there. And specifically on the Great War, like again, <laughs> many of us um, had some family involvement. A great uncle was killed on the Western Front and another was badly wounded there. So that's always been part of the family memory. So I guess that's the background to to my interest in military history generally in the first. So let's talk about Oliver Nugent. Could you start by telling us about his sort of family, educational, personal and early life? Sure. Um, well, Oliver Nugent was born in November 1860 in Aldershot, the son uh, of an army officer. But the Nugents were a landed family uh, living in South Cavan, their estate, uh, Farron Connell, uh, near the village of Matt, uh, in South Cavan. Uh, they were descended from uh, from the Normans who arrived uh, in the 12th century so they had that family has roots uh, in the Irish Midlands going back centuries and that's quite an important point when it comes to um, Oliver Nugent's sense of identity sense of being both uh, British and Irish um, uh, they're an important county family related to the Earls of Westmeath uh, but they weren't a particularly wealthy one um, in the uh, late 19th century. Uh, he was educated at Harrow, which he disliked intensely, uh, so much so indeed that he sent his own son uh, to eat. But of course, public schools in the 1870s were pretty tough environments, and Churchill, 20 years later, disliked almost as, uh, as much as Nugent. Um, until 1876 and the death of his cousin, uh, he wasn't expected to inherit the estate. He, he ends up um, owning the estate uh, at Farron Connell, um, but it's kind of a an accident of mortality that uh, his cousin died young and childless and as a result um, Oliver inherits state um, and becomes the only one uh, and that's again important because the three key occupations in his life are his family, the army and the estate and trying to keep hold of it in difficult financial times uh, was an important driver in some ways of his military career um, but <clears throat> but he always I think wanted to be a soldier uh, and that's the career he pursued. So so moving on to that could you tell us about his sort of early career up to the outbreak of the First World War? Yes yeah, so we got into the army um, <clears throat> using the kind of backdoor route that was quite common at the time and used by Henry Wilson and John French and others which is uh, he got his commission through the militia he joined the Cavan militia in 18 1879, and then in 1882, he was commissioned Royal Munster Fusiliers and was posted to the 2nd Battalion, which then was in Malta. And he only spent uh, about nine months with the Munster Fusiliers, uh, but it was a extremely unhappy. Um, he, the young 
uh, Oliver Nugent was uh, had a great knack for rubbing people up the wrong way. I mean, he was uh, brash. Uh, he was had a hot temper. Um, he was quite careless about his military duties at this point. But also, disastrously, he let it be known when he joined the battalion that his father was working to get a get him transferred to the more prestigious 60th Rifles, the King's Royal Rifle. And as you can imagine, that went down like a, a lead balloon with his uh, fellow officers in the Munster. Uh, so uh, he didn't have a very happy time. Uh, he was glad to leave the Munsters, and they were glad uh, to see him go when he the transfer came through in April uh, 1883 to, to, to move the 60th Rifles. He joined the 1st Battalion, which was then stationed in Dublin. Um, but the downside of joining <coughs> a more prestigious regiment was it also a more expensive. And he soon uh, ran up quite considerable debts uh, after he joined the 1st Battalion at a time when the family estate was struggling financially with the land war and agrarian disputes and tenants uh, refusing to pay their rents and so on. Uh, and so by 1886, he faced a real financial crisis. He, um, he couldn't afford his mess bills. He, uh, his tenants weren't paying uh, their rents. And at one point, it looked like he'd have to both resign his commission and sell the estate. Uh, but then he took a, an important decision in terms of his, his life. He decided to transfer to the 4th Battalion of uh, King's Royal Rifle Corps, which was stationed in India, tried to live more cheaply. And he spends the next 10 years, in it, and that's uh, crucial for him in professional terms because he starts taking profession seriously. Um, he gets, um, he obtains quite a lot of operational service in a series of campaigns on the Northwest frontier in 1891, and again in 1892, and most particularly in 85, the Chitral campaign, uh, where he wins the DSO for gallantry, the Malakan Pass. And there's a really important, uh, an important phase of development for him as a, as a regular soldier. Uh, he develops as a leader. <coughs> um, he's, he's recognized in the regiment as a sort of coming man. He also gains, uh, he impresses some important senior officers on the northwest frontier like William Lockhart and Vlad. He gets to know Lord Roberts and they they assist him getting into Staff College where he goes in 1896. Um, and in the year ahead of him is Douglas Haig and Unfortunately, they don't get on, and that's going to have consequences for his career uh, later on. Uh, but he, he goes to Staff College, um, sort of graduates successfully in 1898, gets married. Uh, he then uh, rejoins the 1st Battalion by now in South Africa. And in October 1999, uh, he's very badly wounded in one of the opening battles of the Boer War and taken prisoner. And so his his Boer War lasts only only a matter of uh, a couple of weeks, really. He's uh, released when Pretoria falls in June 1900. And then really between there and 1914, he does a series of staff appointments. He commands the 4th Battalion of the 60th Rifles. He commands a Territorial Infantry Brigade. Um, and then in early 1914, he, on half pay, waiting his next appointment, returns to Ireland. By that stage, is the middle of the home crisis brings him on to the next phase, really, of his career. Your, your answer brings me nicely on to my next question. So what were Nugent's political and religious views uh, before the Great War, given that Ireland was on the verge of civil war? Well, he... <clears throat> In his own politics, he was a committed unionist. Um, he was a member of the Protestant uh, ascendancy, a member of the sort of Anglican Church of Ireland. Um, he, but also, as we've been saying, he had this um, uh, strong sense of, of his um, Irish identity. He saw no conflict between being both British and Irish, um, and he didn't want to have to choose between identity. Um, but he opposed home rule for the entire Ireland. 
island of Ireland. Um, so when in 1914, amongst the many discussions uh, going on, uh, the proposal comes up that um, one possible solution would be to partition Ireland and split Ulster and the rest, um, he actually isn't in favour of that option. He wants he wants home rule blocked for the for the entire island. But when he returns to Cavan in 1914, uh, his close friend Lord Farnham, who's the biggest landowner in Cavan, uh, and also leader of the Cavan Unionists, persuades him uh, to become leader of the UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force in Cavan, uh, the Cavan Volunteers. And that's quite a tricky moment for Nugent because he's still a serving officer, albeit on half pay, and to be leading a paramilitary force uh, while in that position obviously puts him uh, in a difficult position. And uh, he was quite conflicted about taking on that role. And in the end, he only took it on on the basis that he would make it clear that the Cavan Volunteers would be purely a self-defence force. They would not confront police and army, but would only defend the, the Unionist population there in the event of their being attacked. And that's how I think he squared his conscience, if you like, between um, his <coughs> military position and his involvement with the UVF. Um, he had signed the Ulster Covenant in 1912, you know, <coughs> during the, the, the main, uh, the initial stages of the Ulster resist, uh, movement, uh, but he'd done so privately uh, and with good reason. Because at, that stand, at that stage, he was still commanding Hampshire Infantry Brigade, a territorial bit. So, um, <coughs> so it was a difficult period for him. His public stance in this was quite, was um, taking a different line from the, the main Ulster Unionist position, which was which was basically threatening, uh, if if it had to to use force to avoid <coughs> being brought into a Home Rule settlement, and I think that was a sign of of um, some tensions to come politically down the road. So he was a Unionist, uh, but um, Cavan uh, was a kind of um, <coughs> uh, collect, collective position, um, and that's reflected in Nugent's personal. And just as as, a, as an aside, did he have any views on the Curra incident, which obviously occurred in the spring <coughs> of 2014? Not that comes out in his correspondence. I mean, this happened um, uh, in March uh, 1914 at the same time actually that, that Nugent was starting training the Cavan volunteers in, in arms handling and drill. <clears throat> so, I mean, he couldn't have taken too censorious a position because he was facing the same kind of conflicted loyalty that, that Goff and, and, and the officers of the 3rd Cavalry Brigade and others uh, right across the army were feeling at the time. I mean, he regarded the use of military force to coerce Ulster as ridiculous. I mean, he just thought it was um, both, um, I think, immoral, but also impractical. You know, he wanted a, a political solution, and in his own case, if a home rule had to happen, um, I think he thought some kind of arrangement where Ulster had particular arrangements, weighted voting um, uh, arrangements in, a, in an Irish parliament was the least bad option. The First World War actually intervenes on the political crisis or the Ulster home rule crisis uh, in obviously the summer of 1914. Now, the Ulster division is formed by Kitchener. What was Nugent's role in the formation of this division and what was his role in the its sort of recruitment, training and preparation uh, and getting it ready for deployment to France? Yeah. Well, I mean, initially he didn't have a direct personal role. The division, as you say, was formed in September 1914. It's based on the Ulster Volunteer Force. Um, five of its 12 battalions are recruited in Belfast and the rest uh, in the uh, the rest of the province of Ulster. Until June 1915, um, it trains in Ulster and then moves to England and Nugent doesn't join it until September. But it is of course um, Ulster Unionism's main contribution to the fighting front um, and so as we discuss in the book, um, commanding it is some of the characteristics of needing a dominion formation in that 
with operational responsibility comes political expectation. Um, most of the leadership, senior leadership division comes from the UVF. Um, when Nugent takes over, there are five unionist MPs serving <coughs> as officers in the division. Um, so it's got a, quite a strong political ethos. Um, so <coughs> um, by the time Nugent joins it, um, he's had his own uh, experience of, of fighting at the front. He starts the war off commanding the defences at Hull uh, for a number of months. But in May 1915, he goes to, to France with the 14th Division as a brigade commander. He has quite a searing introduction to trench warfare in the Ypres salient that summer, including um, the first German flamethrower attack uh, against the British at, at the end of July. So by the time he, he, he's brought in to take over the Ulster Division, because it's, it's a commander at that point, General Powell, a uh, retired Indian Army officer, um, was seen as too old and too operationally out of date uh, to take the division uh, to war. And that's very common, of course, with new army divisions. Uh, so it's, it's at that point, September 1915, that Nugent uh, catches up uh, uh, with the division. Uh, and of course, he has an immediate impact because his assessment of the division when he takes it over is that the men in it are, are extremely high standard in terms of physique and, 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 and sort of general um, quality um, as soldiers. But the division is under-trained and that the officers, many of them aren't up to the job. And so he has a, <clears throat> a major sort of clearing out exercise over the next uh, number of months um, all three of his brigadiers go, half the COs are removed, both his senior staff officers go. He puts the division through an intensive training program. They, they go to France almost immediately after his arrival. He arrives in September, three weeks later, they're in France. Um, and so, but there is a period behind the lines to, to try and catch up with training and sort out discipline and, and a whole range of things. So, so he hits the division very hard. I mean, he's a, he's a hard-nosed, tough-minded commander. He's quite ruthless with the Vikings aren't up to the job. Quite a few of the people he does get rid of have political connections at home and that doesn't help his relationship with Ulster Unis Mute, that helps. <laughs> so Nugent commands the Ulster Division from 1915 to 1918. <clears throat> Can you give me a brief outline of his command and the sort of major actions that he was involved in and what sort of problems he faced in the command of the division? Yes, well he led the Ulster Division in, in all of its main battles um, up until May 1918. So um, and those include, obviously, the 1st of July, 1916, the first day of the Somme. It's the most famous, uh, iconic battle. Uh, it's a glorious failure, but it makes the uh, division's reputation and is one of the defining events in the uh, history of the Ulster Protestantist tradition of the 20th century. So that's, uh, and Nugent plays an important part in the success of the division, the way he plans for it, putting uh, his leading waves out into no man's land before the uh, barrage lifts off the German front line and so on. So 1st of July is his most famous battle, but then that's followed by Messine in June 1917, which is a spectacular success under a commander in uh, in Pluma, Nugent admires greatly, uh, and who, in his turn, admires Nugent. And symbolically important, Nugent, of course, the Ulster Division and the 16th Irish attack side by side. Um, and that matters to Nugent because uh, he hopes that the shared experience of, of fighting the war will um, uh, ease of or even remove the domestic political divisions in Ireland um, and uh, so <clears throat> so he's very keen to promote the connection with the 16th division so Messine again a great um, uh, uh, a significant success and it was important symbolically then as it has become since uh, that's followed, unfortunately, in August 1917 at Third Ypres by the um, the disastrous failure um, at at Langemark, uh, a, an attack <coughs> uh, launched in 
desperate conditions against unsuppressed defences and uh, in an army where Goff's Fifth Army, where slapdash planning and an uncaring attitude uh, to the formations under their command seems to have been a characteristic. So that is a very serious, it's a heavy defeat, heavy casualties. Um, the two Irish divisions attack beside each other again there, but that's the last time they are uh, used together. That, that, that ends the partnership uh, between them. And Nugent never forgives Goff uh, for that, for that attack. Uh, <clears throat> and so much so that even in March 1918, he's still blaming uh, Goff for that, for that setback, even though that really isn't Goff's fault. Um, so that wasn't a positive experience. The, the next big battle is Cambrai in November and December 1917. And that, of course, is very mo modern. I mean, it is massed armor, um, predicted artillery fire, close air support. Um, uh, and the Ulster Division has a, quite a complicated role in that battle. It, it's initially providing flank protection to the main assault, and then it has to try and capture a fortified village. But its brigades are separated by by the Canal du Nord, uh, so it's a very awkward battle to manage. And it does uh, as well as could be expected there. And then it's caught up in the German, the great German counteroffensive in December. So, so that was uh, quite a drawn out battle um, and quite a complicated one. And Overall, I think the division has seemed to have done well, even though the outcome of that battle is kind of, um, I suppose, it's kind of score draw, I suppose, by the by the time it's over. And then finally, his final his final battle in, in command was the March 1918 German Spring Offensive, where. <clears throat> um, the division is very nearly destroyed, forced to retreat 30 miles, but just but but holds itself together despite crippling casualties. And I think Nugent personally and uh, one of his brigadiers in particular, uh, William Hesse, play an important role in holding it together during that. Um, but it, it does virtually destroy the division. Uh, and then in May 1918, Nugent, uh, as one of the older divisional commanders, is relieved and uh, sent off to India. And in terms of the major concerns uh, while he was in command of the division, I think there were probably four. Um, one, of course, obviously, is dealing with the, the huge operational changes uh, that come along in the course of the transformational change in 19. The second is manpower, because, because Irish recruiting has collapsed by 1916 and there is no Irish description. Um, the Irish divisions are running out of men and every battle that involves heavy casualties creates an existential crisis for them. Uh, the division is very nearly disbanded or amalgamated uh, uh, in the autumn of 1960. It gets an influx of conscripts um, in, in uh, early 1917, but there's political resistance to that. Uh, the Irish to be bailed out by conscripts from Britain. And so for the rest of the war, really, or the rest of Nugent's time in command, uh, they kept going by transferring in regular Irish battalions uh, to replace disbanded service. So, um, <clears throat> so that's a constant preoccupation and explains some of his frustration with the politicians at home who he, don't, he doesn't be doing enough to support them on the on the recruiting issue. He had the same problem that all divisional commanders had in identifying replacement commanding officers because of the very high um, burnout rate, uh, wastage rate with COs and that's a, a constant concern of his. And then at least at the early stages, early of the division's time in France, um, there's the general question of discipline. He was a, a ferocious disciplinarian. Um, but there were two aspects to that with the Ulster Division. One was just his general concern to to have high standards of discipline, dress, and and uh, uh, just because we, uh, as a matter of military uh, military discipline and good order. But also, of course, the division has a very distinctive identity. You know, it is raised from the Ulster Volunteer Force. Uh, it is a strongly loyalist uh, formation as part of its strength in terms of motivation. And, and to be fair, they were the first of July 1916 attack is not a myth. It's an extraordinary military achievement. But Nugent is nervous uh, or he's aware that there are people in the army hierarchy who are nervous about having so formation in the army so he's quite concerned to manage the the uh, division's 
<coughs> sense of identity um, and discipline around in a way that kind of matches the army's expectation he does. So what kind of person was Nugent and how was he regarded by his colleagues, the press and politicians? Well, he's very, um, <coughs> he was an intelligent man um, and uh, very open to new uh, military thinking. So, I mean, he was, he was a, so in, in military terms, he was quite a progressive commander, uh, but uh, his personality was different. I mean, he, um, he had a very strong personality. He dominated uh, the division. Um, uh, he had strong views on most things. He was, he was quite intolerant. He had a ferocious temper or an explosive temper, um, and that was partly uh, the result of the wounds he'd received in South Africa. He had a bullet lodged in his back for the rest of his life, and so he was in constant pain. And that didn't help uh, his temper. Uh, so people were scared of him. You know, he was he was he was he was quite a severe commander, particularly in the early days, because in 1915-16 when he takes over the division and takes it to France for that. Um, uh, I think he thinks that the division is rather pleased with itself, you know, and complacent, and he doesn't believe it's operationally ready. And so he goes in very hard um, on them. We've already spoken about clearing out a lot of, a lot of the officers, but just in terms of general um, standards of discipline and so forth. Um, uh, there are signs he, he softens a little bit um, after the song, and people people who knew him uh, well um, found him easier to approach. Um, he always cared deeply for his soldiers. There was never any question of that. He may not have shown it, but he was uh, very concerned that they were properly looked after, that officers uh, fulfilled their responsibilities when it came to uh, making sure that their men were looked after as well as possible. I mean, importantly, he was determined not to waste their lives through poor planning or keeping people in efficient position, uh, which could uh, result in, in heavy casualties. Um, but he was always a formidable commander you know, right up uh, right up to the end his relationships with, with others i mean he his relationship with the ulster unionist leadership particularly james craig steadily collapsed as the war went on and by, and by the start of 1917 he and craig really aren't on speaking terms effectively um the and that's based really on two things first nugent's frustration as we've said with uh what he feels is a lack of support on recruiting because his division is struggling uh, to keep up the strength and his units are in the line after the Somme um, under strength and overworked. And he, he doesn't feel politicians at home are assisting with that. But secondly, and, and also fundamentally, is uh, the disagreements over the political future of Ireland. Because in June 1916, after the Easter Rising, uh, but before the 1st of July attack, the Ulster Unionist Council as part of political negotiations that followed the rising uh, opts for uh, a political solution, a solution involving the partition of Ireland, but on a six-county basis, which means that three Ulster counties, Donegal, Cavan and Monaghan, um, are excluded. And of course, Nugent is from Cavan. Uh, Lord Farnham is ADC, as we said, was the leader of the Cavan Unionists. Lord Leitrim, one of his battalion two ICs, is leader of the Donegal Unionists. So there's, uh, uh, in addition to this, the, the soldiers serving in battalions like the 9th Irish Fusiliers or the 11th Inniskilling, who, are, who come from those three counties, quite a lot of the senior officers in the division do too as well. So when the division goes over the top on the 1st of July, they know that the unionists from those counties know they've been abandoned by their by their fellow union and Nugent's bitter about it. And so um, uh, that culminates in a, in a, he's asked in December 1916 to, to deliver a Christmas message in, in the press and the Belfast newsletter to people of Ulster. In it, he's extremely critical of Ulster's recruiting performance and of the politicians, and, and that breaks relationships completely. There's, a, there's reliable evidence, I think, that Craig tried to get 
engineer Nugent's removal from command early in 1917. That doesn't succeed, obviously, but it's a sign of just how much uh, relationships have, have deteriorated, of course. So how effective do you think Nugent was as a divisional commander? I think he's very... I think he's a very good divisional commander myself, and but more importantly, people like Plumer thought he was a very good divisional commander too. I mean, they thought uh, the Ulster division under him was a good formation, um, and they thought he was reliable. Several times there was um, there were suggestions that he was going to be promoted, um, but there were two problems with that. One was um, there was almost no promotion to core command level for you know between sort of early 1916 and 1980. He, he um, assessed himself that he'd gone out to the front earlier for. May 1915, then he might well have got promoted. Um, but the second problem was um, his poor relationship with Hague. Um, and uh, by the time um, promotion to Corps Command opens up again in uh, early 1918, a combination of Hague's age, uh, sorry, of, of Nugent's age, at this stage he's 56, which is quite old commander by 19, and the fact that he and Hague don't get on uh, means that, that he isn't going to get promoted. But as a divisional commander, um, I think uh, was professionally competent, uh, very careful planner, good at selecting subordinates, good at making things happen the way he wanted division. So uh, under a sympathetic army commander like Plumer, they were, they were a good partnership. Under somebody like Goff, um, quite a... So what happened to Nugent after the war? Uh, well, he was, when, when he was relieved in May... Uh, 1918, he was sent to India to command the Meerut Division, which uh, uh, up in, in northern India, which is a big administrative district. So, it, it, I mean, he had I mean, like 80,000 soldiers under his command there. So it was a big command, even though it's called a division, but it was an administrative uh, district. And I mean, th- this was going to be his third. Um, this was his third stint in India. He, you know, the 10 years he spent there in the 1880s and 90s, and then he was there for a couple of years as a battalion commander before, just before the war. Um, but um, this was a very unrelaxed period, really, for him, because it coincided with significant unrest in India uh, in the aftermath of the war. It's the period, of course, of the Amritsar massacre, which occurs in the neighbouring district. He was at Staff College with um, Brigadier Dyer, who's the man responsible for that. But there was there, there were um, serious tensions in, in Nugent's own district, which included Delhi, um, as well as Meerut and other big cities. Um, and so um, it was quite a a stressful period, I think. And uh, also he had to really send troops off to help fight the Third Afghan War, although he didn't uh, serve there himself. So it wasn't the kind of relaxed posting he might have expected when he, he hadn't particularly wanted to go back to India, but he wasn't given the option. So he stays there until uh, the summer of 1920, retires uh, from the army to Ireland. And of course, he arrives back in Ireland to find the countries at war. The, the, America, the Irish War of Independence has been started in early 1919, but it really takes off in the summer of 1920 and over the next year or so um, probably about 90% of the fatalities uh, in the conflict um, occur so so the war is intensifying um, Nugent doesn't have any active role to play there himself in terms of the security situation. Um, he is fortunate that he's living in Cavan, which, um, because a lot of the violence during the war of Independence was geographically focused, so Dublin is a very act, um, uh, uh, scene of operations, and Munster, particularly Cork, of course, where one of his um, former commanding officers is killed, uh, shot in Cork in 1920, John Peacock. So had Nugent's home been in Munster, um, he might not have been left unmolested in the way he was in CAF, but he adjusts um, uh, to post-war life. Um, he recognises the inevitability of um, Irish independence 
uh, and he um, prepared to accommodate to that, becoming a member of the Irish Free State. And so he he focuses a lot of his effort um, on on um, commemoration, you know, in terms of remembering the, the service of, of Irish soldiers in the Great War and also supporting um, ex-servicemen. And quite a lot of his former colleagues do get involved, of course, in the conflict. Quite a lot of ex-Ulster Division soldiers are serving in the in the Ulster Special Constabulary. One of his key, one of his former commanding officers, um, Frank Crozier, commands the auxiliary division of the RIC for a period. Um, so, so um, Nugent's hopes that shared waters would um, actually unite people back in Ireland proved to be misplaced because quite, quite a number of uh, members of the IRA had also served, you know, in the, in the British Army during the war. So. Um, uh, so, and Nugent, but Nugent focuses on, say, commemoration, like the building of the Ulster Tower. He's on the um, committee overseeing that, rather uncomfortably with James Craig, of course, who um, they have to work, who's now Prime Minister of Ireland. Um, the Divisional History, written by Cyril Falls, a very good history, and he takes a close interest in that. Um, he's spends a lot of his time opening war memorials and, and, other, and other events of that sort. But also he's a trustee of the uh, Ulster Memorial Fund, which um, doles out money to people who need it. It's, it's a fund that was created during the war. He set up during the war, funded by proceeds from <clears throat> divisional canteen and so on. And actually that, that distributes quite a lot of money in the early years of the post-war period. So that's, so that's his focus after the war really is, is on commemoration and welfare and my penultimate question is what projects are you currently working on uh well i I mentioned the um the i was doing a phd so i'm working on the the irish landed class in the army between at the moment at least between 1775 and 1903 and i'm uh, based at the university of kent there we're working um Tim Bowman, who's of course a great expert on the first war, um, as as my supervisor, and Mark Connolly also. So, so that's that's the main focus at the moment. My final question is: Where can people find out more about your book? Well, um, the well, the two places. If if, if people are interested in acquiring a copy, it's it's available on on, on Amazon. But the publishers, the Ulster Historical Foundation, um, uh, are also uh, have done, if I may say so, a, 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 an excellent job in terms of the production of the book. Um, they 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 are also the, the place to go for that. Nick, thank you very much for your time. Tom, thanks very much for having me. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.